So, uh, this, um, this is a message different than I've probably ever given before. Um, let's start with a Spurgeon quote. I like Spurgeon, you know that. Spurgeon said, I'm afraid we are too much like the world for the world to hate us. I'm afraid we are too much like the world for the world to hate us. So, this is a message that I mentioned is different. I've never done anything like this before, but I felt a necessity to do it. Um, so, I want to answer some questions that are out there in the Christian Twitters and Facebooks and all of this about Alistair Begg. Um, because he said something very controversial. Um, well, it was actually back in September, but it just came to light in the last few weeks, and it's been quite a, a storm on the Internet, so to speak. Um, so anyone who knows me very well knows that I love Alistair Begg. Um, I've probably listened to as many of his sermons. There's maybe one other person I've listened to more of, but uh, I've listened to probably 100 or more of Alistair Begg's sermon over the years. Uh, got to meet him. Actually, the Kingdom Come conference that we just advertised during the announcements, he was there. I was last year, the year before, and I, he was very gracious to me. Um, and uh, he's had 40 years of faithful preaching. He's been on Truth for Life. Many of you have heard him on the radio. Um, and so we want to recognize that. But the controversial thing that happened, and I'm going to address this with Scripture, so this is just to let you know because some of you aren't familiar with what's been going on. So in a, I think it was on a podcast or another radio show, uh, not his own radio show, uh, he talked about how he told a grandmother to attend her grandchild's transgender wedding and to bring a gift. And his rationale was this would surprise the grandchild because the grandchild would expect that the grandma would stay away and by her going then she would show this great grace and love uh, to him or her. I don't remember which. And so the Internet responds. There's many Christians on the Internet that were just bewildered by this. I was one of them. Uh, I was shocked because I have heard him preach very strongly on many of these issues. So it was this huge surprise. And yet, I wanted to wait to see what would happen, because I knew once people started to talk about it, I thought, well, maybe he'll respond and say, I wish I hadn't said that, or maybe I, said, I you know, somehow recanted or something like that. Um, but then uh, AFA Radio, which has hundreds and hundreds of stations across the country, um, contacted his ministry, and they didn't talk to Alistair Begg directly, and I'm not sure why he wouldn't talk to them, but his staff emphatically said, that he was not going to change his position, and he stood by it. And uh, so I, I was surprised by that, too. I thought, I wonder why he didn't have the conversation. Last Sunday, then, from his pulpit in his church, uh, Begg responded from the pulpit to this whole controversy, um, and then it ended up on YouTube. And I did watch the entire thing, to be fair. I didn't just take clips that other people saw. I watched the whole thing to give him the full credit. Um, he called the, the kerfuffle over it a storm in a teapot. Um, in his message, he basically implied that, or 
came around and said that those who disagreed with him strongly were Pharisees. Um, he misused Scripture. And it grieves me to say that. He used the parable of the prodigal son in order to make people who disagree with him the son who didn't understand the father's grace. I sat in my office and wept. A man I love for years, respect greatly, and it was almost like a personal insult. If you disagree with me on this, you're that son. To further the kind of insults that I felt, whether he meant it or not, he said, I didn't come out up, he's from Scotland, as you may know, he said, I didn't come up with this American fundamentalism. He was from the UK, so he said, I understand nuance, basically implying that people who disagree with him don't understand nuance. And then he said his main concern was protecting the grandmother's relationship with her grandchild. Huge mistake. Because our main concern should always be pleasing God. Our main concern should be obeying his commands and stating the truth even when it's hurtful to family members. So I want to preach this morning from 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1 and, and I want to talk about what the scripture says whether can a Christian participate in a blasphemous unholy wedding ceremony which I do not think anyone should. 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 7.1 says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I want to read a quote from you. I'm not sure if I had this one on the screen or not, but um, it says, 40 years ago, liberal theologian Langdon Gilkey gave this assessment of his church in, of his church in America, meaning the American church, an assessment that could describe much of the evangelical church today. All around us, we see the church well acclimated to the culture, successful, respected, wealthy, full, and growing. But are the transcendent and the holy there? In the area of belief, we find widespread indifference to the Bible and ignorance to its contents, and strong resentment if a biblical word of judgment is brought to bear on the life of the congregation. In worship, we find notably lacking any sense of the holy presence of God and of what worship is for. 
In ethics, we find the cultural ideals of friendliness and fellowship more evident than the difficult standards of of the New Testament or historic Christendom. Hearing this today, who can deny that biblical ignorance, an absence of holiness in worship, and ethical accommodation have become widespread among evangelicals? As Joe Bailey, author and writer, said, or wrote, the evangelical church is sick, so sick that people are crowding in to join us. We're a big flock, big enough to permit remarriage of divorced people beyond the expectations of exceptions of the word of God, big enough to permit practicing homosexuals to pursue their lifestyle, big enough to tolerate almost anything pagans do. We're no longer narrow. It's a wide road of popular acceptance for us. Which brings me back to the Spurgeon quote I started with, which he said, I'm afraid we're too much like the world for the world to hate us. So we, we see all of this and we have to answer this question. And I saw uh, many, many, many respected Christian leaders respond over the past week with little YouTube videos or blogs and different things about this situation with Alistair Begg and his ungodly advice about going to a gay marriage. Al Mohler said, I've been talking about this for 20 years, and he said, I've been cautioning people that they need to make up their mind now because someday a friend, a co-worker, a family member is going to ask you that question. Here's your invite. What are you going to do? And I think that's good advice. I think today, if you haven't thought this through, what will you do if someone invites you? Uh, I think you need to make up your mind ahead of time so you're ready with the right answer. Now, because we can't go to a gay wedding because that's celebrating something that's unholy and ungodly, that does not mean that we are to be removed completely from unbelievers. In Mark chapter 2, we saw some instructions from Jesus. He, He was eating with sinners. Remember, this is the argument. It says, and he, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is what a lot of Christians will say to allow themselves to participate in ungodly activities. They'll say, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So I have carte blanche to do whatever I need to do to spend time with the people, and maybe somehow I'll win them that way. But dining with someone is not the same as attending with them while they sin. You could love a sinner that goes to strip joints. That doesn't mean you need to go sit by him there. You do not participate in the sin of others. And a blasphemous wedding is no different. We are not to participate in sin. That doesn't mean we don't love sinners. Can you go and have dinner with a gay person? Absolutely. Show them love. Show them compassion. Have a conversation. Get to know them. Fine. Do you participate in their sin? No. 
And this is where I believe Alistair Begg made a, a false dichotomy, meaning that means a false choice. It means a choice that's not really split like it's presented. His false choice was that you either go to the wedding or banish the grandchild completely, as though there was nowhere in the middle. But I disagree with that. I think the grandmother could still love her grandchild without attending the sinful wedding. Alistair Begg is right that the grandmother may lose the relationship. If she doesn't attend the blasphemous wedding, the grandchild may say, I'll never speak to you again. That is a possibility. And it's a possibility we know because Jesus himself announced quite clearly that following him would cause relationships to be broken. In Matthew 10, starting at verse 34, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves mother or father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You could add into the list of people and the relationships Jesus included there, grandmother against grandchild. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. That is what Jesus said would happen. So what do we do? We disobey God to keep a relationship? Or do we obey God and risk losing the relationship? That's a tough choice, by the way. Janelle and I know a family that they were very conservative in the church as far as morality and all of that. And their daughter went that direction, and their theology changed. If your family member goes in that direction, is your theology going to change? It's a tough decision, though. Many of us are parents. If we were faced with a child saying, if you don't accept me for who I am, you're never going to see me again. But Jesus is saying that, that whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. These are tough decisions. I'm not saying it's easy. It's very difficult. But you better know your scripture and you better know what your stance is on these things. And I believe that if, as a witness to that person who's straying away, to tell them, what you think, and to tell them that you're not going to participate hopefully might have some redemption value to them in time. We don't know what God is going to do. And you keep praying for them. So we talked about this morning in Sunday school that you need to be persistent in prayer for people like that too. But you cannot participate in their sin. Following Christ will put you at odds with people who are not in the faith even in your own household. And we are under his command, and we are to be obedient to Scripture. Ephesians 5 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Now, getting back to our main text, 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So when you see those two question marks in that verse, those are rhetorical questions. The answer is in the obvious thought. The answer is clear. There's no partnership. There is no fellowship. Now, the unequally yoked, uh, sometimes people have taken this to, oh, that just means about marriage. And that's actually not true. It actually could have to do with almost anything in life that you're committing yourself to. It could be business partnerships. You might think you've got a neighbor who's the most savvy business person, and if you join him in his venture, you're going to get wealthy, but he is an unrepentant sinner, and you're going to have trouble, unequally yoked. Could be your friends you hang out with. It could be a lot of things. Uh, but you cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Only danger can come there. Verse 15, then, again, rhetorical questions. What accord has Christ with Belial? I always thought it was Belial, and then once I heard John MacArthur say Belial. So now I don't know how to say that, by the way. But it, it's a representation, it means Satan. Christ has no connection with Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Again, rhetorical question. There is no accord. There is no portion. Verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And we, for we are at the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Again, no agreement. We have God in us. Scripture tells us. That God is in us. So we cannot participate in any religious ritual that is outside of his sanction. If we walk with God in us, we won't go into a satanic temple. We won't go into a blasphemous marriage ceremony. We won't go into certain places. We're banned because God is with us. That doesn't mean we, we can't ever reach people that do those things, but we don't do it in their place. We don't go into the temple of Satan and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Have you met him yet? No, we need to find other ways to do that. 16, uh, verse 17 and 18, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, 
Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So be separate, go out, do not touch. Be separate, go out, do not touch. Now, as I was studying uh, this passage in 2 Corinthians, I've, I often do look at Matthew Henry. He's still, I think, one of the best um, commentators that, in history, even though he's been dead for a few hundred years. But he wrote, uh, and those, these will be on the screen for you, I think. Um, I just want to quote some of his comments on this passage. The caution or exhortation itself not to mingle with unbelievers, not to be unequally yoked with them, either, number one, in stated relations. It is wrong for good people to join in in affinity with the wicked and profane. These will draw different ways, and that will be galling and grievous. Those relations that are our choice must be chosen by rule. And it is good for those who are themselves the children of God to join with those who are so likewise. For there is more danger that the bad will damage the good than hope that the good will benefit the bad. Number two, in common conversation, we should not yoke ourselves in friendship and acquaintance with wicked men and unbelievers. Though we cannot wholly avoid seeing and hearing and being with such, yet we should never choose them for our bosom friends. Number three, much less should we join in a religious communion with them. We must not join with them in their idolatrous services, nor concur with them in their false worship, nor any abominations. We must not confound together the table of the Lord and the table of devils, the house of God and the house of women. Now, there was not any gay marriage going on when Matthew Henry wrote this, but it almost seems like he could have written that today. Don't join in religious communion with them. Don't join with them in their idolatrous services. Don't concur with them in their false worship. He continues on and writes this, Who can touch pitch and not be defiled by it? We must take care not to defile ourselves by converse with those who defile themselves with sin. It's a lot of negative so far, I realize. But I want to round this out with a positive because this passage ends, this is one of those examples where there's chapter breaks aren't really the quite correct spot. But this, end, this thought kind of ends with verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So why do we separate from the evil practices of the world? Because we have these promises. What other practices must we separate from? Are you putting relationship with worldly people above your commitment to serve the living God? How do we show love to the world without approving of their evil or without participating in it? A wedding is a ceremony in which all witnesses are approving of it. Even if they say they're not, I'm just going to be loving. You know, they used to ask at a marriage if anyone had an objection. I don't think many people ask that anymore at weddings, but 
if no one did have an objection, what was the assumption? That you're all in support then. If you didn't object, you're in support. A Christian cannot attend a wedding of anything other than what God determined, a marriage between one man and one woman. No matter what the government says is legal, it's not permitted for us. It would violate the commands we have just observed to go out and be separate and not participate in their evil. You know, the Old Testament begins with a wedding. Adam and Eve joined together, become one flesh. The account of Jesus' ministry also begins with a wedding that he attends. In the last book, Revelation features a wedding. God has put a very high and holy value to weddings. They are an example of the relationship between God and his church. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each, of you, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the passage that I begin with every couple that's ever come to me wanting to get married. I want them to understand that marriage is very special. It's very holy. It's not to be taken lightly. Though the world has made a mockery of it, the church must uphold it in the highest esteem, defending true marriage, supporting it, and promoting it. We must not take part in sham weddings that mock God's plan. They are blasphemous ceremonies. They're taking the very pure thing that God created and making it uh, an offense to him. Because Satan twists all the good things that God has made in his opposition to God. Homosexual weddings are satanic rituals. God hates it. Whether the people in there would ever admit that or not, that is a fact. Because if something is not of God, what else could it be? Now, this does not mean we should not show kindness and love. We should show kindness and love to all of God's enemies and share the gospel with them, hoping that God will redeem them. Jesus is full of grace and truth, so we must be as well. There's no love in watching the sin of others. 
Now, as I close, I just want to say once again, I loved Alistair Begg. And I hope you'll pray with me that he'll come to a different conclusion on this matter. And I've recommended him to many people to, in fact, on, my, on our church website where I have pastors, I, I recommend he was on there until a few days ago and I took it off. Because unless he changes his mind on this, I don't know what else to trust anymore. And that's so sad. But as I sat in my office and I had tears over the situation, my thought was, if a man so great as Alistair Begg in the pulpit can go astray, what chance do I have? So pray for me. I don't have any pleasure in this sort of rebuke of Alistair Begg. It grieves me. But I saw in it a lesson that we need to think about. How are we going to interact with the world in these situations? And so I hope the scripture this morning has revealed to you where I think we must stand when it comes to God's holy, uh, his holy communion that comes in marriage between a husband and wife. We should not and must not ever take anything less than what God designed it to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider these things, and perhaps some of us may in time be faced with this choice, whether to keep a relationship with a friend, family member, co-worker, or to keep our relationship